0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today.
1: After years in the suburbs, the Detroit Pistons may be ready to make a move back to downtown Detroit. How likely is that to happen? And what would the deal look like if it were to come through? We're going to talk about it with Bill Shea of Cranes Detroit Business. We'll also talk to him about Donald Trump's visit to Detroit and Donald Trump's taxes, which made news this weekend. We'll also talk about immigrants and the impact they have on cities around the country. It's all next on Detroit Today. But first, the news. D-E-T. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Big weekend in news this week, and I figured we'd start off the week talking about some of that news. I've got Bill Shea, a reporter with Cranes Detroit Business, frequent contributor here on Detroit Today in the studio with me. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Harry. Thanks yeah. for having me. Uh, and a little later, we're going to talk about uh, immigrants and the impact they have on on communities around the country. What happens to cities when they have large numbers of immigrants in them? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? We've heard a lot about immigrants during the presidential election. A lot of things have been said about what what they do or what effect they have on American life and American culture. Uh, we're gonna talk to two folks who are very close to the issue uh, and get, a, get a, a closer look at uh, what impact immigrants actually have when they come to cities here in America. Bill, uh, the big news, of course, I think uh, this weekend, we ought to just jump right into it, is the New York Times story Sunday about Trump's tax returns from 1995. They show he had a huge loss, uh, $918 million uh, that he reported that year. And because of the way that the tax code is structured, because of the way the rules work, New York Times says that would have allowed him to effectively pay no federal taxes for up to 18 years. I, I think it's an incredible uh, story. It, uh, it, it the the narrative this campaign about Trump's taxes has been one of the more compelling and confounding ones. I think uh, why doesn't he just release them? This, of course, gives us some idea of maybe why he's not uh, releasing those tax returns for people to, to comb over. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about your reaction to the story and to the idea of what effect this might have on, on the election.
2: Well, my first reaction was one of complete and lack of surprise. Um, on the content of what the Times <laughs> this found. This what you thought. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, mean, I it, it, the record's out there that, you know, in the early 90s, Trump struggled tremendously with debt and bankruptcies and, and things like that. So um, this is our first chance to see the scope and the scale of what a terrible, terrible businessman Donald Trump was. Yeah. Uh, maybe for personally for himself, um, he did okay. Um, I, you know, at first blush, I'd like to not pay you know, federal income tax for twenty years. Like a lot of people, well um, like while, while having money pouring in the windows, um, but yeah, it, I, it was great journalism by the New York Times, um, and this is sort of the, the story we've been waiting for. I figured it would leak at some point. That you know, there's there's enough paperwork out there, yeah. but it was something was going to drop.
1: So, so the the big question is: Does this matter? Does this matter to the people who are already supporting Donald Trump? Uh, still, somewhere around forty. 40% of, of likely voters in in the polls say they can't, they plan to cast their votes for Donald Trump. Does this matter to people who are still sort of on the fence thinking about who they might vote for for president? A lot of things that have happened during this campaign haven't had much effect and and I think more than than any presidential contest in recent memory, the news seems detached from Uh, the sort of decisive uh, actions that people are making. In other words, that people are deciding on things other than events like this. But this is a big one. And it sort of strikes at the heart of some of the things that Donald Trump has been saying. Donald Trump has been very critical of uh, investment bankers, for instance, who don't pay taxes, saying he wanted to raise their taxes so they could pay their fair share. Uh, He's also, uh, you know, again, danced around this whole issue of Releasing his tax returns, which is something that most presidential candidates have done uh, in recent times, does this does this sort of fall into a different category and therefore raise the specter of you know a a major shift in the way that the campaign's going? Well,
2: I, I think it it should, but I don't think that it will because I think by Wednesday we'll be on to the next outrage. With Donald Trump, and whether that's just <laughs> it just keeps coming, yeah. Right? Whether that's by accident or by design, I, I have no, or both. I I have no idea um, whether the the Times expose sways those last three undecided undecided voters. <laughs> I, I don't know. I would hope that it would, um, but you know the the echo chamber that I hear from, you know the the right side of the aisle is you know just it shows he's a genius, a great businessman. Well, you know it's cognitive dissonance because that same side is after the investment bankers, or the illegal immigrants for not paying their taxes. Well, here's a guy not paying hundreds and hundreds of millions, maybe billions in taxes over 20 years, and and that he pays sales tax and other taxes is completely immaterial. This is federal income tax. Sure. He's made it a point to hammer on people for that.
1: Yeah. Uh, This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Bill Shea, a reporter at Cranes Detroit Business. We're talking about the news over the weekend, uh, starting with Donald Trump and his tax returns. The New York Times published a tax return of his from 1995, shows he had massive losses in his business, uh, losses that would have entitled him, according to the New York Times, to not pay federal tax for about 18 years. What did you think of the story? What did you think of the New York Times doing the story, perhaps risking some legal repercussion for publishing somebody's tax return without their consent? Give us a call. Join the conversation. Also, tell me whether you think there is something decisive about this information. Is there something about this that pushes the election or your decision in a different direction. 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Facebook, the WDET page there, or go to Twitter and hashtag us at Detroit Today. Uh, we'll work your comments into the conversation. Again, the number is 313-577-1019. Bill, I want to talk to you about this legal issue. Uh, the, the Washington Post, as you pointed out before we went on air, had a story. Uh, originally, that said that uh, The Times might face some legal trouble because of, of the publication of these tax returns. Uh, Dean McKay, who is the editor of The New York Times, has been talking for weeks uh, in public about that potential legal risk and saying he was willing to take it uh, because of the news value of those tax returns. Uh, it turns out, though, that this may be sort of a tempest in a teapot, Right
2: yeah it's uh, you know, there's the federal law that that uh, says you're not supposed to publish federal income tax information. Well, The Times published, uh, I guess what functionally is a New York State income tax information that included federal information so that doesn't fall under that federal statute. and And from everything I was reading over the weekend, you know, there are no state statutes that prevent publication of that information. But even if there were, this is a clear-cut First Amendment case. This is, you know, someone running for the highest federal office in the land. You know, this this would this wouldn't even get in front of a judge, I don't think, at, at any point. Yeah,
1: yeah. And and uh, the you know the debate about uh, that, though, in journalism circles, I think sort of hints at the debate that we've been having during this campaign about the job that that particularly the national media have been doing covering this campaign. There's been a lot of criticism of the New York Times, a lot of criticism of the Washington Post, the networks for supposedly not really aggressively covering this oddball campaign. I mean, even if you support Donald Trump, I think you have to admit that he's not a candidate like any other that we have seen. Uh, I think this weekend story, which got a lot more attention than some of the other things uh, that the New York Times and the Post have done, this story really reminds people that there is there is an aggressive effort to to cover him and to 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 let people know about all of the things that they might need to know before they vote. I actually think uh, they've been doing an exceptional job at the at the Post and the Times. Every week there has been a major sort of deep dive into a different facet of Donald Trump, uh, many fa- many facets of Hillary Clinton also. Have, uh, have made news there. They really are rising to the occasion. It's 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 sort of untrue or unfair, I think, to say they haven't.
2: Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. But I, I think it's a case of, you know, how the public, the partisan public consumes media now when, you know, if this was 30 years ago, these stories like the, the tax uh, expose over the weekend would be shattering to a campaign. But in the the rise of the internet and digital age and social media you know as as trump stumbles from from one outrage to the next you know we're, we're quickly on to the next thing and and people have become you know it's like ohio state michigan people are have carved out who they're going to root for right. and that's going to be a lifelong you know blood feud as you know team team trump team clinton it doesn't matter what you know the, the media has to say what the report and what the facts are simply don't seem to matter to a lot of people. If Trump came out tomorrow and disputed gravity, (laughs) millions of Americans, I fear, would be like, yep, gravity, it's a media myth. (laughs)
1: That's right. It doesn't really exist. It's all in our minds. Uh, Let's go to the phones here. And again, if you want to join us in this conversation about Donald Trump uh, and his tax returns, we're also going to talk uh, about the Pistons, the Detroit Pistons, and whether they may make a move back to downtown Detroit. The last time they played in downtown Detroit, I was... I think six or seven years old, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Kelly in Lake Orion, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Hey. Go ahead.
0: Oh, my question is, is who made the decision of that if you have a great loss, you don't have to pay taxes for the next
1: 18 years. Uh, that's a <laughs> that, that's a great <laughs> question, Kelly. I don't know. Uh, I don't know spec- if you're asking specifically who. I mean, uh, the IRS, of course, uh, ha- has has uh, some supervisory role over over those rules, but it's Congress that makes uh, the tax laws in this in this country, and with with the. The say so of the of the president as well. Uh, the New York Times went to great lengths to explain, Bill, what this what this was. It really is not just the losses that he sustained that made this possible. It's it's the kind of business he was in, and it's because he's essentially a real estate uh, mogul that allowed him to do this.
2: Yeah, it's the uh, you know the, the American business and real estate and, and corporate income tax. Laws are, are such a Byzantine. I'm not going to say mask because they're designed to be that way. They're sometimes the laws are intended to be confusing. You know the lawyerly language. You know l- just look at an SEC filing, and which I have to do almost every day of my job, and it is just a mind-numbing, you know, pile of lawyerly speak and deception and things like that. And the tax laws the same way. It's intended to be this way. They they were written by the wealthy. For the wealthy to protect the wealthy. Now, sometimes there's very smart, wise things in there, um, and sometimes those those common sense, you know, tax laws exemptions get taken to these extremes that nobody expected at the time. I, I don't know when this particular law that allowed him to, to carry over these this loss into an exemption for a full generation. Um, I don't know who who wrote that and when it was you know inserted into the tax code, but it's there. You know he apparently legally took advantage of it. You know I'm I'm not an IRS auditor. I I, I don't know um, if you know if everything is copacetic with everything. Um, but he took advantage of it, and you know some of the criticism aimed at him certainly you know needs to include that. Tax code, and that's the thing about Trump. He's not saying, "Hey, fix this law that I took advantage of." He's not saying that. He's going to keep that on the books. Um, like right. Cognitive dissonance.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is somebody who's been critical of that tax code, uh, and and according to this return at least, has been as guilty as anybody of taking advantage of I mean, it. I mean, frankly, I think you'd find a lot of people in that in that uh, in that category. I mean, people don't necessarily go in and pay more taxes than they are supposed to. I think the problem here, though, is that you're talking about a presidential candidate who is critical of those things and critical of some of those people doing the same thing. Uh, Kelly, thanks very much uh, for that call. Let's go to Terry in Detroit. Terry, welcome to Hi. Detroit today.
0: Hi, Stephen. Hey, good morning. how are you? I'm good. Hey, listen, I just want to point out the obvious here. It doesn't take a genius to run a business actually Pile? We're talking about somebody... <laughs> Who um, bankrupted several businesses. We're talking about someone who touts uh, creating jobs, but in fact, he has also um, lost jobs. you know, his casinos closed, and it was devastating to the community in Atlantic City and all of those employees there. So uh, you know, I, I just I wish the media would call him out a little bit more on this idea that he isn't such a great businessman. I mean, in some ways he has been and in other ways, He's done um, all of this at the expense of other people.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's that's becoming really obvious, and and uh, people seem to be uh, writing about it. But but I mean, there again, uh, Terry sort of pointing out that uh, uh, that we haven't heard as much as maybe she would like to about it. Uh, Terry, thanks very much for the call, uh, Tom in Northwest Detroit. Welcome to morning. Today. Well,
0: you know, this says a whole lot about him being upfront, forthcoming, and transparent, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I
0: mean, this guy, as far as transparency goes, I mean, that glass is like it's it's, it's opaque.
1: <laughs>
0: you're not going to see through that glass. And uh, you know, the bottom line is, when you're in this race for the most powerful seat in the country, you can't. Hit, I mean, if you got skeletons in the closet, you better go ahead and bear them because somebody's going to find them out. Just like as long as it took for the, for you know him to come, and I don't know if he came forward with it or the media just went ahead and you know somebody leaked his tax. You know, yeah,
1: I think I was it was like, I think it was uh, given to the New York Times, uh, okay. not by him. Okay. So, yeah, okay. no, I think I mean I think you're right, Tom. Uh, there, there's some real questions about how forthcoming this this candidate is willing uh, to be. Thanks very much for that call. Uh, Bill Shea, I think one of the things that that uh, the tax returns raise is what else is in there, right? Uh, I saw somebody talking this morning about this and saying uh, clearly what what is in the rest of his tax returns might even be worse. Uh, otherwise, he would be releasing them to try to to try to clear this up. Uh, maybe we'll see him do that this week, but uh, uh, certainly if he doesn't. It's it's almost like a snowballing effect. You've got this story out there that that makes this this very uh, strong accusation. If he can't counter it uh, by showing in, in his in his subsequent tax returns that somehow it went in a, in a different direction, that would be uh, that would be a big problem, I would think.
2: Yeah, and you know, I, it seemed to catch him unawares because he gave that speech, I think, in Pennsylvania on Sunday, that was just a complete. B- you know, 30 minutes of madness of just unhinged gibberish and accusations and weirdness. Um, so th- they weren't prepared for it. Um, the idea of him releasing a bunch of returns to show that, you know, Hey, the times was wrong. I think there's very, very little chance. I mean, it could happen. Sure. I think there's very little chance of that. Cause I think you're right. I think the rest of, you know, the full, the full federal filing is just rife with, you know, as somebody su- suggested, you know, there's probably a W-2 from Satan in there. It's um, <laughs> not going to get better. Yeah, it, it's just going to be even a million times worse. Yeah.
1: Uh, let's switch subjects here really quick to a local subject. Uh, the Detroit Pistons uh, may be moving to Detroit proper. You know, I, I, I have long suspected that this might be possible. I didn't think, I said, I, I guess I didn't think... With the new the new hockey arena being built, that it would necessarily come up this this fast that uh, that that before uh, the new arena is even open, we're having a discussion a real discussion about whether the Pistons might be downtown. Talk to me about uh, about where we are in that story, and sort of what's likely to happen.
2: Yeah, we, we've had sources telling us that you know the 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 talks have kind of accelerated. Um, on relocating the the Pistons for some or all of their games in Auburn Hills to the new Little Caesars Arena when it opens next year or sometime shortly thereafter. Um, And and it it makes sense because if you're going to have a a two-tenant, you know, a two-full-time tenant building, you want to build it that way rather than trying to retrofit it, which is very expensive. But it is, you know, such a negotiation is very complex. There are a billion moving pieces to how you, you know, revenue splits and suites and timing and all that sort of thing. Um, but they're in talks. And, uh, you know, sources have told us they're they're fairly serious talks, a little, maybe a little bit more serious than the public facing comments that they've made, that some papers have gone back and forth, you know, proposals and what, you know, what the Pistons want to accomplish, their sort of macro level goals that they need, um, the protections that they want to do such a thing. Um. So they're they're definitely in accelerated talks about it. They may not be near a deal, but folks I've talked to said that deal could happen soon, or it could happen in nine months. Yeah. But it it may very well may happen.
1: Yeah. And and uh, these talks are these separate from the entertainment packages that. Will be at the new arena and at the palace. My understanding always was that that was sort of the the thing that lurks in the background is how you negotiate those two things uh, along with the sports team.
2: Yeah, it, that's part of all of the discussions. You know, these are competing entertainment companies, and they have been for a long time. And we're very frosty in their relations for many many years. Yeah. Um, that's warmed up. Quite a bit, but, and that that's one of Palace Sports's concerns is you know how what is the future of the Palace of Auburn Hills, which is still a fantastic arena. Yeah, you know, it looks like it could have opened five years ago, um, and it was Tom Wilson, uh, who now runs Olympia Entertainment, is the guy that built that he facility built that. for Bill Davidson <laughs> in '88. Um, so that's one of the things that Tom Gore, as the Pistons owner, wants to. That's one of the things he needs satisfied is what is the value of the Palace going forward. You know, he's put almost fifty million dollars, he said, into renovations since buying it in 2011. Um, do you tear it down? Do you do you get the the concerts coming up there that can't play at Little Caesars because there's a Red Wings game or a, a Pistons game going on that night, so they need somewhere else to play, and there's sure. there's no more Kobo, there's no more Joe Lewis, so you got to go somewhere. So that's you know, they got smart guys. Uh, men or women, uh, in the room trying to figure these things out.
1: Yeah. Uh, also, uh, th- there was news about the Illiches uh, building a, yet another parking garage uh, to meet the economic development threshold they have for the new arena. I read that story and thought to myself, you know, all of the people who are super critical of the Illiches for the way that they have done development downtown just would ju- jump all over a story like that. It seems to fall right into... The what? Right into the wheelhouse of, of those criticisms.
2: Yeah. The, uh, you know, they're, they're building, I think it's a 500 space garage over near uh, Harry's Bar. It's basically on the, the stadium, you know, the large footprint site. And there potentially could be some, you know, residential or mixed use with that. And there there's, Any project in sports today has the words mixed-use development attached to it. That's how you make it palatable to (laughs) to everyone. Um, You know, none none of that's surprising. Um, It's, uh, I think, a $24 million project. Um, You know, they they want people going to their – Hockey games and their their ice capades or whatever or, or Pistons games yeah. um, that are happening there and they want them living there and shopping there at their stores and bars and t shirt shops and whatever else maybe yeah be I, and and
1: I mean I think you know I mean there are lots of reasons to be critical of the deal that was put together to to make this happen and and I've not been shy about that criticism at the same time uh, there's no question that this will fundamentally change life in that part of the city, right where it is. I mean, there there's just going to be so much going on with this development. It really is not just an arena. There's all kinds of other stuff planned. There is housing that is slated to open uh, at the same time that the the stadium gets going. I think that's the first time we've done that here in the city of Detroit. It really is going to be different than what we've seen before.
2: Yeah, If you love it or hate it, there's no denying this fundamentally is transformational for that area, uh, how that plays out for the longtime residents of that area, how it plays out for those coming in from elsewhere, you know, uh, suburbanites or elsewhere in Michigan or out of the state who want to come be part of this, you know, businesses that want to come in, you know, we're talking about a, a target and grocery stores and hotels and in this, you're building a city within a city. And I, I've seen this happen before um, in, in Columbus, Ohio, they, they did something very similar and it, it transformed a, a sort of dead or decaying or r- rough area into a much more vibrant thing, um, you know, and that's got benefits and it's got problems with it, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, Bill Shea, reporter with Crane's Detroit Business. As always, thanks for being with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, coming up next, we're going to talk about— What cities in America seem most suited to housing refugees, immigrants, and what happens to those cities once immigrants are there? A lot of talk about that in the 2016 presidential election. We're going to have uh, some local experts unpack it for us. Stay with us on Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. As always, we talk a lot about this show about the divisions in our society based on race and religion and background. We try to address those divides between groups of people in an intelligent and civil way. There's one group at the center of worldwide controversy—a group that transcends race, religion, and income. These are people who've been forced from their homes by unrest in their country whether it's Hungary or Pontiac Michigan people are arguing about whether to accept refugees into their community much of the discussion is about security but we talk much less about what these refugees bring to communities when they are resettled i read a story recently in a magazine called quartz that talked about the best american cities for refugees and what qualities Those cities share. I thought there was a really interesting list. One was good public transportation. Another was a culture of volunteerism. Another was a mosque in town, given the number of uh, Muslims who are caught up in Uh, the refugee crises around the planet. Uh, Another was a population that leans Democrat. And of course, that's a reference to the presidential campaign where we've seen Republican Donald Trump talk very disparagingly about the idea of refugees coming to the United States. Uh, Also, an entrepreneurial ecosystem and chilly weather, as it turns out, uh, is one of the things that uh, makes a city More sort of appealing to refugees. Um, I wanted to talk about this subject today uh, and sort of unpack this a little bit. Talk about refugees in general uh, coming to the United States. What do you think about that? Uh, Certainly, that is a topic that has been uh, on lots of people's minds throughout the presidential campaign. Again, Donald Trump has said over and over again that he would like to stop the flow of refugees into the United States. Hillary Clinton is much more welcoming of that idea. But I also want to talk about uh, what that looks like on a local level. What does that look like here in southeast Michigan? Refugees, many from the Middle East, of course, are coming here to, to to settle in because of the large population we already have from that part of the world. And what does that do here in Southeast Michigan? What does it look like? What is it like for those refugees? This also, by the way, has become a subject in political conversation locally. L. Brooks Patterson, the Oakland County Executive, has said some really, really tough and aggressive things about refugees coming to oakland county his uh, his disdain for that idea and of course we want to hear from you uh while we have this segment 313 1019 what do you think about the idea of refugees coming to southeast michigan should we be more welcoming of refugees than we are? Should we be doing things to help those refugees a little more than we do? Or are you afraid of the idea of welcoming refugees from other places? Do you think they pose a security risk to the United States and to Detroit? Again, 313-577-1019 is the number to join that conversation. And joining me now is Hassan Jaber He is the CEO of ACCESS, that's the Arab Community Center. Center for Economic and Social Services here in Southeast Michigan, and Ashadi Martini. He's a senior Syria advisor at the Multi Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees. Both of you, welcome to Detroit today. Thank you,
3: Stephen. Yeah, thank you for having us.
1: Steve. Yeah, uh, uh, Hassan, I want to I want to start with you to talk about what the refugee picture looks like here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, I. Certainly, if you if you watch the news or listen to the news or read the news, you get the sense that that uh, Metro Detroit is sort of a nexus for these arguments about refugees. We're having that argument, I think, a little more robustly here than we are in other places. Uh, but but what does it really look like up close? Is this uh, something that's happening in large numbers here? And what's the effect of uh, what's actually going
4: on? So, um What's happening is really uh, nothing new new to the Detroit area in terms of uh, refugees. Uh, remember, Stephen, that we've dealt with this issue for almost the past twelve years. Before the Syrian refugees, we had the Iraqi refugees, and we also had refugees from African countries, and we had refugees from Bosnia. So uh, 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 it's not a new issue for us, uh, and it continues. Uh, uh, I think uh, Detroit is a, uh, a, welcome place, a welcoming place, and you mentioned the support services, and you, you mentioned the fact that Detroit is a welcoming community, the Detroit region is a welcoming community. So far, uh, we've had uh, almost 800 Syrian refugees uh, coming to the Detroit area. It's the second largest nationwide. California had the largest numbers. Um, we expect in this number to go up uh, next year. Um, there is a, a, a strong infrastructure of support. There is a welcoming community. There is a need for refugees to be uh, to be uh, um, well received in Detroit. It's in the long run. It's a, it's a benefit for all of us. We've seen the experiences. We've seen the data. We've seen what happened before, from the Vietnamese to uh, to the Jewish communities, to Italians, to everyone uh, who came before. These are, in the long run, uh, uh, a good investments in communities.
1: Yeah, and uh, eight hundred. That's uh, that's actually, you say that's the second largest number in the country uh where where are they where are they settling and uh what are what are the support services for them that exist
4: now so they're settling in the in the detroit metropolitan area all over and, uh, all over yeah. and there are pockets of concentration but these are not large pockets of of, uh, of concentration uh, and there are two types of support. There are these uh, refugee resettlement agencies that uh, uh, that take, takes care of the immediate needs uh, of these refugees, from housing to trying to find jobs to enrolling kids in schools. Uh, and there are many community organizations on a volunteer basis uh want to support uh, these refugees, and we w- they want to welcome these refugees. So you will see many volunteers transporting them. Transportation is an issue for us here in the Detroit metropolitan area. Uh, many are given furnitures and, and clothing and, and so forth. So th- there is a very healthy base of support yeah. uh, for these refugees. And, and, and Stephen, you'll find that these people are extremely appreciative uh, these refugees are extremely appreci- appreciative of given a second chance, uh, given a chance to to uh, to have a uh, to have a better life for them. So th- these are wonderfully uh, investments in in people, uh, and and in the long run. Uh, just to give you an example, there are more than thirty thousand small businesses owned by immigrants in the Detroit region. And, uh, it's it's a net revenue uh, uh, and a net gain economically for our state yeah
1: I mean these are businesses that of course not just they don't just contribute to the local exactly.
4: economy they employ people exactly
1: uh, they they bring stability to, to neighborhoods and communities I mean that's a very important mm. uh, dimension of, of the immigration picture
4: and that's beside the moral issue Right,
1: right. That's totally separate from yeah, the right. idea that we ought to be mm. uh, looking to, to to refugee populations uh, as as people who need our help. Mm. Um, uh, Shadi Martini, you're a senior advisor, uh, a senior Syria advisor at the Multi Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees, but you also... Uh, I understand are pretty close to the project in Pontiac uh, that was supposed to uh, uh, s- supposed to help house refugees coming from Syria that project has been uh, a target a specific target of Brooks Patterson he has talked about that he's mentioned it many times uh, before recently he said uh, some even tougher things about it. Uh, tell us about that project first, uh, and then tell us why, uh, why we ought to be doing something like that here in the metro area.
3: Well, the project was an idea by uh, Syrians, uh, Syrian-Americans who live in Auckland County. And the idea was actually very interesting. They saw that there is a crisis that's uh, affecting a lot of uh, Syrians from the Middle East, and the administration was uh, going to resettle Syrians in the United States. And they saw that uh, some communities are losing uh, populations. You know, we have some communities here in Pontiac, Detroit, you know, the population is decreasing, not increasing. So they felt that it's a win-win situation by helping these communities that local communities like Pontiac that they have a connection to, to uh, redevelop uh, areas and like build, uh, you know, neighborhood by neighborhood, bring them back by open, you know, building new houses that, that of course, that means uh, property tax that will help uh, schools, health system in the community. At the same time, helping Syrian refugees are going to be settled by the federal government. So they thought it was a win-win situation for everyone that will benefit local communities and people who are in desperate need as yeah. refugees.
1: Um, the, the criticism that's been leveled is the idea, it's it's centered around security. The idea that somehow uh, if we create a, a neighborhood or a community that's heavily populated with with refugees from a place like Syria, that, that we increase the chances that We will be victims of terrorism here in in southeast Michigan. Uh, uh, Talk about why that's either an accurate or an inaccurate assessment of things.
3: Well, actually, the statistics uh, don't uh, support this narrative. Uh, First of all, the Kieto Institute did a study about the threats of uh, being killed by terrorist act according to your VILA status. And they found out that uh, to be killed by a refugee uh, is the chances is one in three point six billion, and that's with a B. <laughs> and the chances of being uh, killed by a fellow American native is one in fourteen four hundred, you know, fourteen thousand. So the chances of being killed by your neighbor or next door is much much. Uh, higher than being killed by a refugee. And the statistics since uh, nine eleven, uh, the U.S. have uh, uh, resettled uh, more than 760,000 uh, refugees. The cases that are related ter- to terror is like less than 10. And all of them is something connected to um, Like uh, financing or something like that, nothing actionable. So refugees are really a very secure segment that is coming into the United States because the vetting process is so extensive. It takes about two years for a refugee to come here. So uh, the facts doesn't support this argument. And also there's another anxiety, not only a security anxiety, I think there is economic anxiety for some communities, which is very important. And of course, that's also the facts doesn't support this anxiety. The International Rescue Committee, which is a resettlement agency, reports that 85% of refugees are working after 180 days. So refugees tend to uh, find work uh, very fast and are contributors to, to society in taxes. And of course, like I mentioned, if they had a chance to own a home and property tax that will support our uh, social network. Yeah. Uh,
1: This Mm -hmm. is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guests are Hassan Jaber, CEO of Access, the Arab Community Center for Economic and Social Services here in Southeast Michigan, and Shadi Martini, uh, Senior Syria Advisor at the Multi-Faith Alliance for Syrian Refugees. We are talking about the idea of refugees relocating here in the United States and specifically here in Southeast Michigan. Uh, Lots of controversy at the national level over this idea. You have a presidential candidate, a Republican candidate, presidential candidate who has been uh, very doubtful about uh, the safety associated with uh, with uh, leave, letting lots of refugees into the country. Even locally, we have had uh, our debates about this issue. Uh, give us a call and talk to us about what you think about refugees relocating here in uh, Southeast Michigan, what kinds of things we might do as a community to welcome Uh, refugees who come here, or if you feel like uh, you you fall into the category of people who are fearful of the idea of refugees here in Southeast Michigan, you feel like uh, the the government is not screening them uh, well enough, which is one of the things that Donald Trump has said, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. Let's go to Casey in Warren. Casey, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Yeah, yeah the, the whole issue with refugees coming into the United States or really going into any place, uh, I think is the assimilation slash security question that you've got to you've got to be able to put these people where they're going to assimilate the best, but they're also going to be secure in the sense that they can thrive. And I think it comes down to economics. I'm only using. Uh, I went out to Oklahoma City in the early '80s. And a lot of Vietnamese refugees were being transplanted there. Um, It was a financially stable area back in the 80s. There was no job here. Uh, Texas Oklahoma was was the base. So people were put in there, and it was a a winning situation in respect to you're always going to have tribal.
1: Casey, so your phone. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for the call. I think I think <laughs> through the static there, we got a pretty clear idea of what he's talking about. This idea of assimilation—that's one of the words that we hear a lot mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about immigration—and there, there is, in my opinion, uh, an unfair burden that's placed on. Uh, new immigrants or immigrants from certain kinds of places uh, to quote unquote assimilate uh, into the United States uh, and and I'm, I'm never quite sure what that means right uh, I mean if you think of Irish and Italian Americans there are lots of things that they do to show their pride in, in their heritage in the countries that they have come from here in the United States and and no one ever seems to have a problem with that at the same yeah. time uh if somebody has uh, uh, clothing for instance that they that they need to wear for uh, for religious purposes or speaks a different language that seems to that seems to rub people uh, the wrong way a lot
4: easier I I agree Stephen I agree and the question is assimilate to what um uh, so uh, I think when you have refugees and immigrants come in here um, Eager to work. Um, let me give you an example, Stephen. We have this entrepreneurship program that we target refugees and urban poor so in terms of entrepreneurship training. Last year alone, 120 uh, businesses, small businesses, were created by these refugees. Um, and 70% of them are women. This is assimilation. This is assimilation. These people are proud of being part of community. They are proud of being part of the values of doing good. This is assimilation. These people are really eager and happy to be given a second chance. Uh, and and they, they tend to work hard. They tend to be uh, entrepreneurs. They tend to be very loyal. These are the values. uh, that that these people come with. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, uh, Shadi Martini, uh, that that idea of assimilation and somehow that that leads to more security, if somehow uh, uh, the idea being that that if people drop much of the culture or the language uh, of the country that they're from and become sort of, uh, quote-unquote, more American that there's the, we will be more secure. It's, it's an, again, that's an, an odd sort of logical assumption or maybe an illogical assumption there, I think.
3: Well, it, it is a little bit strange because I think what's American is to celebrate our differences. That's the core American value. And, uh, of course, uh, when you look at, uh, for instance, the uh, Syrian community which is uh, much talked about, and it's already in the United States. You have... Uh, about probably 180,000 Syrian Americans, and uh, they, they, probably a lot of people don't notice them, especially here in Metro Detroit. That they are your uh, physician, your next door neighbor. That means that they are uh, as American as uh, any other American out here, you know. And even statistics, you know, the the median income for Syrian uh, families is $62,000. So it's it's uh, like in the norm, like any American. American family but uh, all communities celebrate their heritage and I think that's a healthy thing it's not a bad thing and uh, you know when the Irish celebrate Saint Patrick's Day, that's that's a nice thing, you right. know. That, that's not a bad thing. I don't not think. No one feels threatened. Yeah. And uh, the other day, I saw a Sikh uh, bikers uh, group that goes <laughs> around uh, with the turbans. That's that's a nice thing. That's a healthy thing, you know. They're mixing uh, uh, an American thing like driving your bike across the country <laughs> with your heritage of being from the Sikh community. So I think that's uh, enriching our communities, and I think that. Uh, Immigrants from all walks of uh, life from all over the world are really all becoming uh, real patriot Americans, and you can see it. You can see it in uh, in the army. That's a very good example sure. where you see people from all uh, uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, serving together and protecting uh, our country. You can see it in Arlington Cemetery, where you go and see people from all faiths are buried there. Right there. and yeah. uh, and actually being from an Arabic. Heritage at the moment is very valuable for our security because that's the people who can uh, go and help our security in understanding a lot of... the threats that is coming our way so that i think that's enriching our society not uh, making it more vulnerable yeah
1: all right when we uh, come back we're going to continue our conversation about refugees here in the united states here in southeast michigan uh stay with us and stay with us on the phones 313-577-1019 we'll be right back on detroit today You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. My guests are Hassan Jabber, uh, CEO of Access, Arab Community Center for Economic and Social Services here in Southeast Michigan, and Shadi Martini, a senior Syria advisor at the Multifaith Alliance for Syrian Refugees. We are talking about refugees, refugees uh, nationally and here in Southeast Michigan. What effect do they have on the communities that they settle in? And what communities are most welcoming of refugees from places like Syria? If you want to join the conversation, uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Howard in Rochester. Howard, welcome to Detroit Today.
0: No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a uh, home care registered nurse, and um, I'm treating a family of uh, Syrian refugees. Mm. Uh, they just came, came over recently. Um, the mother is widowed, of course, from the war. Three of her children are paraplegic from the war. Wow. Uh, we're uh, doing what we can to help them. Um, my issue with this whole thing is people still consider these people terrorists. This is an example of the refugees that are coming here. It took them, s- still, uh, with everything that went on with this family, it took them well over a year to get here. Right. Uh, I'll have to admit the Arabic community, the Chaldean community, is, is doing what they can to take care of them. But uh, just this concept of of uh, refugees uh, being a danger to our society, uh, our, our our country is uh, phenomenally ridiculous. Um, yeah. I think it's caused by uh, a number of different factors that we can probably discuss
1: sure. for another hour. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we absolutely could. Uh, Howard, thank you very much for calling in uh, and sharing that experience. It's a really uh, important data point here. Um, you know, the, I hear these stories all the time from people sure. about who these these refugees are and what they need. You know, uh, the, the sort of cliched way to put it is that they're fleeing a war-torn country. They are not looking, they're looking for peace, not trouble. I mean, mm-hmm. these are people who are looking for a situation where they are not in danger.
4: First, uh, Howard, thank you for for. Care for these people and, and and for the comment. And, and you're absolutely right, Stephen. Uh, uh, overwhelming majority of these refugees are women and children. And, and these people really go through a, a very intense vetting process to come here. And like Shadi said, the, the narrative of them being a risk is not supported by statistics and data. Um, The other thing is we really need to be careful from looking as a society at every problem we face from a race perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, And that that has a lot to do
1: with this, right? Exactly. Uh, I mean, this is about where they're from and what Mm. they look like, what religion they may practice uh, as much as anything else.
3: Well, yeah, actually, first, yeah, I'd like to thank you, Howard, for what you're doing. It's, uh, it's really amazing what you're doing. Yes, exa- 80%, let's be specific, 80% of refugees are women and children. And the other thing that people need to understand about refugees, refugees are people who are fleeing war. Yeah. So they are a different segment of society. You can find a professor, a color professor, a judge, you can find a plumber, you can find a teacher, you can find everyone is a refugee. It's like a flood victim. It's like an earthquake that happens to a country. Everyone loses their home, regardless of their status and their community. That's what refugees are. And actually, refugees, for instance, let's talk about Syrian-specific. People think that refugees are sitting in camps waiting to be resettled. That's not the case. 90% of refugees are sitting outside the camp system. It's, they are called urban refugees. Yes. Most of them are not allowed to work in their in their country, so they are really desperate for our help. And I think that's the safest way that you can bring anyone into the United States. So um, again, the narrative of uh, terror is not valid. The other issue that is very deceiving—that somehow if you refuse in one county or one state to accept refugees, that will happen. It's yeah. a federal program. Right. That's right. So, so anyway, if you refuse, we can't it, really. Do anything. Yes. So if you refuse, uh, let's talk about uh, even uh, borders. You know, Canada have accepted uh, more than twenty-five thousand Syrian refugees. What are we going to do to (laughs) build a a fence along Canadian border? That's also things that's not going to happen. Okay,
1: Hassan Jabbar, CEO of Access; Shadi Martini,
3: senior Syria advisor
1: at the Multifaith Alliance for Syrian Refugees. Thank you both for being here on Detroit today. All right, that's going to do it for me. I'll be back tomorrow. Hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station.